Our scripture today comes from Acts 17, verses 22 through 34. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worshipped as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. Just, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a, ma- a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Grace Kids, you're dismissed. Pre-K through second grade, walk with your parents back to the Grace Kids room. This year has been a very polarizing year uh, in, the, in the church in America, so the Big C Church. And it's been, a, it's been a polarizing way in a lot of ways. There have been a lot of casualties this year. And I think one of the biggest casualties that we have had uh, is the ability to believe the best in each other. Uh, it's been really sad to see Christians from uh, all over the country uh, just jump to assume, assume the worst in each other if we don't sense that we're aligned in things like masks and vaccines and politics. So, how does this connect to the sermon series? <laughs> because... Uh, the elders, we field a lot of questions about the direction of the church. And a lot of these questions are actually fueled more from what's happening outside of the church than inside the church. And we see people jumping to conclusions that we don't think they would normally come to uh, in, let's say, a normal year and a normal, a normal climate. So we wanted to do this series to, to clearly communicate who we are as Orlando Grace Church, uh, what hasn't and will never change about this church and what are ways that we are really hopeful, you know, Lord willing, hoping to build on the solid foundation that we have. So if you have your bulletin, you can see there what, uh, what, our, what our vision is. The vision of this church, we, we created this about a year and a half ago. Um, it says we exist to grow in Christ, to bless our city, and to send to the world. So we have five core values uh, underneath that, blessing our city, equipping our people, 
contextualizing our mission, stewarding our resources, and sending our best. Nothing has changed about that. But our desire as elders is that we would get better in all of those things. And as we get better in all of those things, as we execute them at a better level, that we would be clearly communicating to you exactly what that means in our midst. So these sermons in this series are going to feel a little different than the way that I normally uh, that I normally teach. Normally, I have one passage that I just that I teach from. Uh, here, we're going to be bouncing around different passages in the Bible. We'll finish with Acts 17 today, the one you heard Ben read. And my hope, as we have this confessional and missional series, is to first today uh, really be clear about what it means to be confessional. Second, be really clear about what it means to be missional. And then third, talk about what it means to be both. So we start by what does it mean to be confessional? Well, first we need to define what confession means. When we talk about confession, we're not talking about confessing our sins necessarily. A a confessional church confesses what it believes. You're saying what you believe to be true, what you're hearing from the Bible. So we see confessions all over, uh, all over scripture to begin with. Uh, You can go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Moses says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So that's a confession about the Godhead and and what our relationship is to the Godhead and and something about who he is as the one true God. Uh, Peter has a really important confession I'm going to read and we're going to come back to in just a little bit. Uh, But Matthew 16, Jesus has just asked Peter, Who is it that you say I am? And in verse 16, we read, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Paul gives a more comprehensive confession in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And Paul, so if you go over to Ephesians chapter four, you're gonna see a confession that most scholars think Paul actually took from the church and then put it in in the letter to the Ephesians. It didn't originate with the Ephesians. So there was a a confession likely that was being used around the the church in the Roman Empire when somebody was baptized. And we think that Paul took this and this is what we have now in Ephesians 4 verses 4 through 6. There's one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so Paul refers to all these confessions as trustworthy sayings. And so then obviously the Bible is canonized, which means it's closed. There's nothing more to add to the Bible, but the church continues to create confessions. In the second and third century, we call them creeds. The church fathers created creeds to clarify what it is they understood the Bible to be teaching. And so creed is, it just means believe. These are things that we believe. So it's essentially the same thing as a confession. And so we have uh, all these creeds, they're developed in a context. Usually there's some false teaching that requires clarification about what we believe the Bible to be saying. So you have the Nicene Creed that came about uh, because of the false teaching of the Arians that said that would deny the divinity of Jesus. You have the Apostles' Creed, which we recited today, that came about uh, to, um, to address the false teachings of Gnosticism that were coming into the church. 
And then you have a big span of time, and we get up to the 16th and 17th centuries. This is, of course, the Protestant Reformation, and you have new and very comprehensive creeds being developed. And again, remember, all creeds are developed in a context, and these creeds uh, of the 16th and 17th centuries are, are meant to clarify what the Bible is saying in, um, contrary to, to the false teaching in the Roman Catholic Church. And so you see confessions coming about like the Westminster Confession. You have our confession, the, the Second London Baptist Confession. And these confessions, they are major historic moments in the church. So this is why we don't have just a new confession for every generation. We have major, uh, major confessions at very important moments in the, in the life of the church. And there have been really big pushbacks on the whole idea of a confession. And some, some of you may have grown up in churches or been members of churches that would say things like, no creed but Christ, or no creed but the Bible, which is funny because that's a creed. <laughs> like, that is a creed. That's a confession. No creed but Christ. But even more than that, they, these kinds of churches believe that these kinds of things, these confessions, they're usurping the power of Scripture. We're following man-made documents, is what, how they would argue, instead of God-breathed Scripture. But nothing could be farther from the truth because the point of these confessions and creeds is to clarify what it is that we believe the Bible to be saying. That clarity is the hope, not usurping it. And so to stand on a confession is to actually stand on the authority of Scripture. And saying, you know, somebody comes and says, but you're still using man-made words and I just don't like that. An easy counter is, would you use the word Trinity? Because I mean, that, that's a man-made word that we created to be clear about what the Bible says about the Godhead. So, when teaching the Bible, clarity is the goal. And confessions ultimately are just helping us to be as clear as we can about what the Bible is saying. This is, it helps us contend for the faith. This is the whole point of the Jude series. It helps us to be the rock that the waves of this world crash against and we stay unmoved, unlike the driftwood, you know, just going to and fro wherever the waves might be pushing. So clarity of the word is the goal of confessions. And confessions also, they free us from the blinders that we might have at a specific cultural moment. Uh, by subscribing to confessions, we are not relying on our, our, on our own interpretation. We are not relying on wherever the cultural winds might be pushing at that moment. We are rooted and standing on the good deposit given to us from all generations of believers all around the world. So, by being a confessional church we have a solid foundation upon which we can build. I mean, that's the importance of a confession, of understanding what the Bible and being clear about what the Bible is teaching. And without some sort of clear understanding, clear foundation, ultimately, the, the picture that pops up in my head is we're, we're not unlike the Leaning Tower of Pisa. So I lived for four years in the Leaning Tower, in, in, in Pisa, walking distance. I didn't live in the tower. I lived for four years walking distance from the tower, and, well, three of those four, we could actually see the tower from one of our windows. And we had a season where our ministry was just in the toilet. I mean, nothing was happening. And so every, every afternoon at five, the highlight of my day was taking our little dog up to the Leaning Tower because that's, that's the only place in the city where you could find grass. And there was a little doggy play group of Italian women. 
and the youngest of whom was 75. I was 26. And, and 75 to 90 was, was kind of the group. And, and we would go, and I, every day I'd get to see this tower where the top is 20 feet south of the bottom. And the reason that the top was 20 feet south of the bottom is because it was built on a, on a poor foundation. You build on rocks. You build on something solid. And that tower was built on sandy soil. And so let's go back now to Matthew 16. What is it that the church is built on? Peter's confession. Do you remember Peter confessing to Christ, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God? To which Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And he's not talking about Peter the person, he's building the church on the confession of Peter who recognizes Jesus is the Christ. All of scripture points to Jesus. And so that's what we're building on. And to get very OGC specific, our confession that we use is the Second London Baptist Confession. It, people also know it as the 1689 Confession. It is not a perfect document. It is not a God-breathed document. But it's the best place that we can point and say, that's what we, that's what we believe the Bible to be saying. Right there. Um, there they, we don't expect everybody to agree with every jot and tittle of the, you know, of the confession. When I was uh, being considered as as a pastor for this church, they asked me, the elders asked me to go through the confession and identify if there's any area that I disagree with. And there were four areas that I disagree with. Little things like the way that the confession articulates the Sabbath, I would have a, a different way of articulating things. But even in that moment where we're disagreeing, the confession is accomplishing its goal, clarity. Clarity about what we believe the Bible to be saying. And so, as a confessional church, that will never change. We will always be rooted in God's word. We will always be clear about what we see God's word saying. And I want to say on a personal note how thankful I am for the elders and Pastor Kurt who preceded me over the past about 20 years who have worked so hard to establish this confessional foundation. And how excited I am that we get to be a part of building on that foundation. So, as we now try to add mission on top of that confession, what does that look like? Well, first, we need to define what it means to be missional. When I was hired, I was not hired for some like big directional change in the church. But it was communicated to me that, that we want to continue to build on top of this great theological foundation that we have. And I remember it was May of 2018, so this is the very end of, of Pastor Kurt's tenure here. He preached a sermon called The Five Seasons of OGC. And I, I, I'm, I have it, it's, if you're in the private Facebook group, um, it's gonna, it might already be in there. It's going up in there this morning. If you're, if you're not in that group, just ask somebody to send it to you or email me or whatever. We'll get you that sermon. But Kurt went through the five seasons of this church, and his tenure was seasons two, three, and four. And so he, he called season two clarifying our identity. This is, this is where the elders were working to establish that confessional foundation. Season three was healing our wounds because in 2001 there was a church split. And then in season four, it was suffering our losses. And you can listen to, more, uh, listen to that and understand more what that means. But he called this next season, the one he would not be a part of, season five, and he named it influencing our, season, our city. So what I'm saying is this is no, what we're doing, it, it isn't any different than what the leaders have wanted to do at least since before I came. 
And so this is, this is something we have hoped for, we've been excited to be able to do, and that's the season now. At every level, we want to build on this confessional foundation. The term, the phrase, confessional and missional, that came a little bit later. Uh, I, I remember first, we, none, we didn't invent this term, but I remember first hearing it from Mike Graham about maybe about two years ago, and the light bulbs went off. Like, that's what we're doing. Like, we are a confessional church, we want to stay a confessional church, but we're adding missional to it. That, those are the terms that are now kind of defining what we're aiming to do as a church. Adding mission to our confession. So first, I want to say this doesn't, when we talk about missional, we're not primarily talking about global missions. So global missions is actually something this church is killing it at. I mean, the, 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 mission, the global footprint that a church of this size has is, is really incredible to look at. I mean, and to my knowledge, I think every missionary that we support actually worshipped at OGC. They, they, are, they are OGC people sent out, and which is, you know, it's just a unique place that God has called us to, to steward, um, you know, UCF students and RTS students. Uh, to steward parachurch ministries like Campus Crusade in our midst. So when I say missional, it includes global, but that's actually going really well. Where we want to kind of put our sights and we talk about adding mission to a confession is sending the rest of us. Sending the rest of us into wherever it is that, that we're called to be as people, as Christians living in the city of Orlando. And so the starting place is asking ourselves some hard questions. So these are questions like, why have there been so few baptisms in this church? I mean, you take out the people who are biologically related to us and the people that are a product of the International Ministry of Bridges, you take those people out, there are not a lot of baptisms. So we have to ask that question. You know, we have to ask the question, why is it that there are so many theologically developed people in our midst who may be coming alongside other believers and helping them, but why do we not see new converts? We have to acknowledge the hard reality that if Orlando Grace Church were to be gone tomorrow, probably outside of us, not a lot of people would, would notice. So that's the starting point of missional. And at the heart of this word missional, and this is going to bring us back to the Bible in John 17, but at the heart of this word missional, what we're addressing is the way that we engage the world we live in. That, that's what we're talking about. What is our relationship with the world and how do we engage it? And so we're going we're gonna to read, we're going to look at John 17 in a minute, but John 17 is this passage from which we get the term in the world but not of the world. So, you, you know, Jesus talks about our relationship with the world. And when we, when, as the church has kind of imported this, this phrase, in the world and not of the world, there are two extremes that have developed. <laughs> so on one extreme, you have people hear this and they, they think, well, I need to be more in the world, you know? I need to look more like the world so that, I can, uh, so that I can be fruitful in this world. And I've actually had, I've known people who have taken up things like smoking cigarettes to try and be more culturally relevant to the people that they're called, you know, they're called to, to minister to, which is not our view. And not, I actually don't sense us being very tempted by this view. But on the other side, you've had people who have, hear this phrase, in the world but not of the world, and here's how they interpret it. Unfortunately, we're in this world, but we just need to make the best of it. Unfortunately, we're in this world, but we just have to make sure we're not of the world. And so when we understand Jesus' teaching in this way, it causes us to put barriers up. 
barriers between us and our culture, barriers between our doctrine and the outside world, barriers between our children and the world, barriers between everything that we hold precious in the Bible and anything we sense to be a threat to it. And in its most extreme, uh, in its most extreme case, I don't know how many of you have seen the, the movie Bolt, but there is this hamster named Rhino, and, and he's moving about the world, but he's never outside of his little ball that he runs in. So he's never really interacting with the world. He's never really engaging in the world. At its worst, this is the kind of insularity that it produces. Now, I don't think Orlando Grace Church is, is that extreme, but if I'm honest, and the elders are honest, historically, this is the direction our church has leaned. So what is it that Jesus would have us here in John 17, let me read verses 14 through 17. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So clearly being of the world is not something good. Jesus is not of the world, his followers are not of the world, and we're not supposed to be of the world. But the emphasis here though, it isn't to run from the world, but be sent into it. That, that's the emphasis here that Jesus is, is giving us. That's why he says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So Jesus' mission isn't to leave the world, but to go into it. And our mission isn't to, to put up all these barriers between us and the world, but to immerse ourselves in the world, to immerse ourselves in the culture, yet not be changed. I mean, that's Jesus' mission, fully immersed himself in this world, yet he remains sinless. So we need to become experts in the world, experts in the culture, knowing how to be immersed in it but not changed by it. And so David, there's a man named David Mathis with Desiring God, and it, I, he suggests, and I find this really helpful, there's a church, we should replace this phrase, in the world but not of the world, with another phrase, not of the world but sent into the world. That's how we should interpret John 17. And so to live missionally, it means immersing ourselves in the world, caring about the things that God cares about, caring about the lost, caring about the broken. A missional spirit is gonna make us want to go more into the world. It's gonna make us want to get to know the people that we're, that we're trying to reach. We're gonna find ourselves eating with tax collectors and sinners. And it means knowing and caring about the people that we critique and it means that we have to be eating with the people that we want to reach. So what does that look like? This is the last part where we try to bring it together a little bit. What it looks like to be both. To be confessional and missional is to bring truth to real world problems in a helpful way. Let me say that one more time. To bring truth to real world problems in a helpful way. Now I didn't say bring truth to real world problems and stop there. It's this in a helpful way that makes a church both confessional and missional. And in two weeks, we're gonna really, we're gonna look at what a church is when it's, when it's only missional or only confessional. But bringing truth in a helpful way means that we're really gonna engage with the other worldviews. We're gonna, we're gonna be engaging with people these other worldviews before we just fire off a mean social media post. That means instead of denouncing any idea that's different from ours, we engage those ideas in hopes of showing, 
Jesus is really what you're looking for. Jesus is really the only place that you're going to have any hope. And it means not being scared of an ever-darkening world, but being compelled by the opportunity to be an ever-brightening light in it. And it means that instead of building barriers between us and the world, we're going to actively work to take them down. As Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not of this world. So we can't be tempted to think that the people we're trying to reach are our enemies in some way just because they're, they don't understand the confession yet. And so I've said this before, but the best example that I've seen yet in scripture and what it looks like to be confessional missional is Acts 17 when Paul goes to the Areopagus and so this is in Athens this is a central place of Greek worship of all the you know the different Greek gods uh it the best translation is um is like the house of Ares, the, the, the Greek god, the hill of, of Ares, the Greek god. So this is where they would go to worship. And if you want to talk about a culture that is, uh, that is different from our worldview, I mean, this is so different from our worldview that it, make, it really is going to make most of the worldviews that we interact with today look a little bit tame by comparison because it's so out there. But Paul, he's not running from it. He's running to it, and he's engaging this in Acts 17. And I think he gives us, he goes to the heart of what it looks like to be a confessional and missional church. So the language I've been using are the three C's. And I've, I heard this somewhere and I've Googled and Googled to try and figure out who to attribute this to. And I can find nothing about the three C's, but I did hear this somewhere. It's not mine, but I can't find anything on it yet. But the three C's that we see, that we see Paul using first starts with Comprehend. So Paul goes and he comprehends this culture. I mean, he, you saw him using, he was using Greek poetry to engage with them. He, under, he studies their culture, he listens to them, he understands what it is that he's looking at. And so I'm, I'm not an expert in the three C's, but I'm, I'm really, I'm hoping to, for the rest of my life to be a student of the three C's. So one way that I'm trying to use the three C's right now, one, uh, at least on the comprehend side, um, about two days a week when I'm researching or writing sermons, I'll get out of the office and I'll go to a coffee shop. And I try to be kind of consistent in the coffee shops that I go to so I can build relationships and maybe share the gospel. And the one I'm going to right now is kind of fascinating because it's in a very white part of town, but at any given moment, the, as best I can tell, more than half the people there are either speaking Spanish or Portuguese. And so my, I'm, I'm just trying to comprehend what, what is it about this one coffee shop that's bringing that kind of person? How are the, the people who speak Spanish different than those people who speak Portuguese? How are they the same? What is their, their understanding of Jesus? I actually, I, I, got, I got their Spotify thing that they play because I've never heard any kind of music like they play. I'm just, I want to understand this environment that I'm in. And what's interesting is that as I'm trying to comprehend where I am, I'm realizing real relationships are being developed. I don't think they would feel like projects. I think they would feel like people because I'm just wanting to understand, ultimately, to point them to Jesus, but real relationships are being built. All right, that's the first, comprehend. The second C is commend. So do you notice that Paul actually praises, he commends the Greeks. I mean, what they're doing is so contrary to a Christian worldview they're worshiping all these pagan gods, but Paul finds a place to commend what they're doing. Paul says, I see that you are religious in every way. 
Now, I want to be clear. Paul is not endorsing false worship. He's simply commending them for their belief that there is something worthy of our worship and that they haven't seen it yet. That's what he's commending. He affirms that they are right to worship, but he's not saying that they are right in their worship. But he's still finding something to commend. It would be like going to the, let's just say the most liberal progressive person you know and looking at them and saying with a genuine spirit, I really appreciate the way that you care for the poor and I really appreciate the way you want to stand up for the oppressed. Now you may disagree with every way they would go about doing that, but there's a genuine place to commend them. And you can, you can apply this to any kind of worldview. You can apply it to the left. You can apply it to the hyper right. You can apply it to the LGBTQ community. You can apply it to true Mar- Marxists. You can apply it to a cutthroat businessman who ultimately just doesn't, worships only money and power. You can always find something to commend. If Paul can commend the pagan Greeks about their worship, we can find something to commend about any worldview. And I would go so far as to say, if you can't find something to commend, you haven't comprehended it yet. And if you can't find something to commend, you don't have the right to critique it yet. And, and I can say that because of the doctrine of common grace. So there's this thing that God has given us called common grace, which, which prevents Satan, although he's going to try and misapply truth he's going to try to pervert truth but he can't take all of the truth out of any worldview or it just will never take off any worldview that has taken off there is some nugget of truth in because satan can't get rid of all the truth and so our job is to find that thing and when we find it and commend it then we're getting closer to being able to talk to them about jesus and so sometimes we can't commend because we don't comprehend, but we've got to be really honest with our own hearts here as well. Sometimes we don't commend because we have a hard heart. We have a Jonah-like heart that doesn't really care about the people we're critiquing. And so the, the starting point, if that's us, is just to repent of that and ask God to show us what is in this worldview that we can commend. And then when we comprehend and we commend, we get to the third C, which is critique. Paul does not appropriate the pagan worship he does not try to synchronize it somehow into his faith he points them to Jesus in a way that they will hear so this is Acts 17 verse 23 Paul says for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God what therefore you worship as unknown this I proclaim to you and then he begins to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and Paul does the same thing in other cities. He, sometimes he'll, often he'll start with the Jews in the synagogue and he does the exact same thing here. Um, he, he comprehends, he commends, and he critiques. And in the beginning of, I mentioned our, our ministry in Italy was kind of in the toilet for a season. I mean, we would go, we would go to a college campus or you know, a faculty, we'd share the gospel and we'd go home. We'd go to the faculty, share the gospel and go home. We'd just all day, every day, and it didn't work. We never saw any fruit. And it made me really jealous of all these people I hear about in China where it was like, felt like you could just throw gospel tracts off a building and people were coming to faith. Well, that wasn't what we had in Western Europe. So we had to kind of step back and comprehend the culture more. And we began to understand that for them, college is a very different experience than most of us here in the United States. For them, it was like, it was like Publix or Walmart. 
you go to this place to get something and you go home. So if you want to engage me about something, don't try and catch me at Publix or Walmart. <laughs> I, I'm on a mission, I've got something to do. You catch me at the coffee shop or something else and we can talk, but not there. But because we didn't comprehend the culture, we were addressing them in the worst possible spot. So we began to step back and think, oh, well, all right, <laughs> where, where are these students when they're more accessible? And we began to find those types of places where students students were when, when they wanted to talk, when they were more available to talk. And this is exactly what happened with Paul when, in Acts 16 uh, when he went to Lydia. He went to a place for a strategic reason. He met Lydia and then she took him into his home. So when we were finding these places, not only were we finding that there was more open to talk about the gospel, we were being invited into their lives. <laughs> we were invited on, on weekend trips with them. We were invited into their, their parents' homes often because that's where they still lived. And everything began to change. We were able to critique because now we had comprehended, we had commended real relationships had been established. And now we found ourselves with a platform to be able to critique in a helpful and a loving way. Remember that word helpful, bringing truths to real world problems in a helpful way. And as trust is built, you might actually see that they ask for our critique. When I was, it was my first year in Pisa, Italy, I'd found one of these places. There's one, there's one bar cafe that students would go to and, and they, they weren't studying, they were free, just hanging out. And they kind of, you know, at first they, they really had a hard time understanding that I wasn't a Mormon, but I, I felt like I communicated that to them. And then, then they just, I was kind of a constant presence. And so one day from across this cafe, one of these, these Italian college students yells, Jimmy, because they can't not put a vowel at the end of a word. Jim is impossible for them to say. So Jimmy, and I look up and they said, what in the world is the point of Leviticus? <laughs> I was like, I can do this. I, I was a, a pretty new Christian, but I had studied like the role of the Mosaic law and I, under, I, I knew that and I, I felt like it was in God's providence. He knew that I just studied that and he was like, all right, go in and play. <laughs> and so for an hour, maybe an hour and a half, we had this impromptu Bible study with half the cafe on the role of the Mosaic law and how it ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And so this was a totally type, different type of ministry where not only is it now fruitful, but it's fun. <laughs> We really enjoyed this kind of ministry. And so again, I'm not an expert in the three C's. I want to grow. I want to always be a student in them. But the three C's are the intersection of confession and mission. And we're going to focus more on this in the coming weeks. But I really believe if our aim is to grow in this intersection of confession and mission, then by God's grace, we will be fruitful. And, and when I talk about confession and mission, it's not like they're these two opposing truths that we're just trying to hold on to, just trying to keep them both there. They are designed to work together. You know, in the same way that, that marriage isn't 50% the husband and 50% the wife, it's 100% both. Or Jesus isn't 50% man and 50% God, he is 100% both. So it's not 50% confession and 50% mission, it's 100% both. That's what we're shooting for as a church to be fully confessional and fully missional. And nobody has ever illustrated that better than Jesus Christ himself. Nobody 
was more missional and more confessional than Jesus. Jesus was sinless, which means he never had to choose between the two. He was always, always missional and always, always confessional. And in him, we have this perfect model. He left the comfort of heaven to enter into the messiness of this world, not just to live in this world, but ultimately to endure the consequences that we, that we deserve as sinful people in this world. He took on the wrath that we deserve. If there, there is no greater way to enter into this world than the way Jesus came in, which makes him uniquely positioned to bring us truth. He doesn't look down on us. He loves us. He doesn't run from us. He runs towards us. He, doesn't, he sees all our thoughts and motivations and actions. But he doesn't abandon us. But he also doesn't brush off our sin at the same time. He understands us in our sin better than anybody because he endured much more than we could ever know to endure. When Jesus speaks truth to us, he doesn't use truth to condemn us. He uses truth to love us, but he does it in a helpful way. And at different times, it looks different ways. So sometimes Jesus speaks truth that's harsh and it's upfront. But other times Jesus speaks truth and it's subtle and it's incisive. Sometimes Jesus delays the truth because of our hard hearts. And in all of these ways, Jesus enters into the mission in order to care and confront. So there's no confession without Jesus. There is no mission without Jesus. Because only in Jesus do we have perfect love and perfect truth. I mean, love and truth can can feel like opposites the way that confession and mission do. But love and truth come together in Jesus Christ because he came here bearing witness of the truth and loving us by going to the cross in our place. So Jesus is who we look to when we think about this thing called missional and confessional because he did it perfectly and he did it for us and he's sending us out to do the same, to do a similar thing for other people. We can't die for them, but we can point them to the one who did. So I want to close with this quote from Timothy George on the day that they founded Beeson Divinity School. And what he says, I feel like it really encapsulates the idea of missional and confessional. He says, in the lingo of contemporary labels, we will be neither a haven for disaffected liberalism nor a bastion of raucous fundamentalism. We will be evangelical but also ecumenical, conservative but not irresponsible, confessional yet interdenominational. Above all, I pray that we might be a school where heart and head go hand in hand, where the love of God and the pursuit of truth join forces in the formation of men and women, called by God, empowered by his Holy Spirit, equipped for the ministry of his church, sent forth into the world to bear witness to the grace of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, whom to know is life eternal. I think that encapsulates confession and mission well. So we're gonna have two more parts to the series. We're gonna look at at what happens when we drift to one side, either missional or confessional, at the expense of the other. And then we're gonna get really practical and try to see what this might look like like in a lot of different aspects of the church. So I hope you will stay with us in the series. I am really thankful for the church. And I'm gonna end where where I started. I'm thankful for the men and women who, who labored hard to give us this foundation that we now have the privilege of building upon. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you, you don't call us to do missions so that we can get the confession. You don't tell us to do things that we might be saved. You save us and then you call us into your mission. 
And so God, I pray that we would, that we would see Jesus's mission to us more clearly and that would, that would compel us to be on mission more competently and more fruitfully. God, we thank you. We love you. We pray that these things would be more true of us and we pray this by the power of your Holy Spirit and in the name of your son, Jesus Christ.